You're listening to Mountainside Podcast. Hopefully, at some point in your life, you ask yourself this question. What am I here for? What am I up to in my life? What's my purpose? What am I trying to do? Maybe you ask that question way too often. Like me, I have like an existential crisis every week. It's not healthy. Hopefully, I'm more emotionally stable than that. But it's still good to ask this question once in a while. What am I really doing? And is what I'm doing a reflection of my deepest held beliefs and values? Am I really living out of the things that I believe are most important for me to live out of? Over the past month, we've dialogued with that question. What are we here for? And specifically, what Jesus said we are here for. So we've looked at a few things. One is that we're here to know God. That's what we're here for, number one. Number two, we're here to build God's kingdom. And our work is a big part of that. We're here to build a family. Maybe a biological one, but more importantly, a spiritual one. And today I want to look at the last one we're going to talk about, and that is to make disciples of Jesus. It sounds really arrogant at first, but Jesus said that everyone's main goal in life should be to be like him in pretty much every way. Sands, the sandals, and the robe, maybe. But everything else, he said your main goal should be to be like him. He said that in statements like these. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. I'm the whole deal. I, so Jesus, pointed at himself as the goal of all spiritual formation. And his main business was to invite people to follow him so that they could become like him. So he made disciples of himself. And part of those disciples' job was to make more disciples of Jesus. So part of following Jesus is making more followers of Jesus. That is just what Jesus' followers do. Jesus' final words... To his followers were these that Sammy read earlier in the service. Go and make disciples. Go and make followers of all nations, baptizing them and teaching these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. So in other words, go out and make as many people like me as you can. So if you are a Jesus follower, then Jesus says this is what you are here for, to make more followers of Jesus. If you're new to the church thing, if you're exploring Jesus, what it means to, to follow him, all of this might sound rather strange and conceited of Jesus, that he wants everybody to be exactly like him. And it might bring to mind uncomfortable scenes like serious-looking dudes in black suits, Bibles under their hands, ringing your doorbell, you know, standing on your porch, or hidden religious agendas that other people have underneath their relationships. Why did Jesus think we should not only follow him, but that we should make more followers of him. And I'm going to concentrate on the second part in this sermon today, because in all the rest of the sermons, we concentrate on the first part, being a follower of Jesus, but I want to focus on making followers of Jesus, how you can make followers of Jesus. So 
to get into Jesus' head on why he thinks everybody should be just like him. I want to tell you another story. The story is about a lady named Helen Keller. When Helen Keller was born, she was a normal little girl, very rambunctious, a lot of energy, loved learning about everything around her. But when she was two years old, she contracted a disease. They can't figure out what it was, but they think it was meningitis. And within a space of weeks, she lost both her vision and her sense of hearing. She was plunged into darkness. She wrote this about that time. She said, gradually, I got used to the silence and the darkness that surrounded me. And I forgot that it had been, ever been different. So when most kids are learning, you know, they're developing, they're learning how to communicate and, and understanding their world around them, Helen's development was stilted and stunted and came to almost a standstill. But her intelligence kept growing as she got older and older. And yet she couldn't express it in any way. She wrote this, Sometimes I stood between two persons who were conversing and touched their lips. I could not understand and was vexed. I moved my lips and gesticulated frantically without result. This made me so angry at times that I kicked and screamed until I was exhausted. Meanwhile, the desire to express myself grew. <clears throat> the few signs I used became less and less adequate, and my failures to make myself understood were invariably followed by outbursts of passion. I felt as if invisible hands were holding me, and I made frantic efforts to free myself. I struggled, not that struggling helped matters, but the spirit of resistance was strong within me. I generally broke down in tears and physical exhaustion. If my mother happened to be near, I crept into her arms, too miserable even to remember the cause of the tempest. After a while, the need of some means of communication became so urgent that these outbursts occurred daily, sometimes hourly. Light, give me light, was the wordless cry of my soul. So life went on like that for Helen until she was seven years old. And her parents were searching all over to try to figure out somebody that could help her, and they landed on this lady named Anne Sullivan, who was a special teacher for the deaf and mute. And they invited Anne to come and live with them and to teach Helen. And they tried to communicate, and they stumbled along, and things weren't going well, and finally they had a breakthrough. What Anne did was she put Helen's hand underneath a cool tap of water. And as the water ran over her hand, Anne, in her other hand, in Helen's hand, she spelt the word water. This is what Helen wrote about that moment. As the cool stream gushed over one hand, she spelled into the other the word water. First slowly, then rapidly. I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motions of her fingers. Suddenly I felt a misty consciousness, as of something forgotten, a thrill of returning thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that W-A-T-E-R meant the wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, set it free. So now... She was able to communicate for the first time, and her mind came alive. She wanted to learn what everything was called, where everything was, but also her emotions were awakened, which up to this point had been stilted and stunted. She came into the experience of her full humanity and her emotions as well. She said this, the most important day I remember in all my life is the one on which I met my teacher, Anne Mansfield Sullivan. 
On the one that she, the day that she came to me, I am filled with wonder when I consider the immeasurable contrasts between the two lives which it connects. This is the way that Jesus' followers talked about their life before and after meeting their teacher, Jesus. They said that day marked a major demarcation between two very different lives. One life which they described by comparison as darkness and one which they described as light. Paul, one of Jesus' first followers, wrote this. God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, had made this, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus. And he also wrote this. I once thought that all these things, when he's talking about all these things, he's talking about all the things he was after before he met Jesus for success and image and religious achievement. I once thought that all of that was valuable. But now I consider those things worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. So for Paul, all the things that he was after before he met Jesus, which he thought were so important and so good, were by comparison garbage and worthless to what he said was the infinite value of knowing Jesus and becoming more like him, being his disciple. If you read the New Testament, this is how all Jesus' followers described their life before and after Jesus. The whole New Testament is written by Jesus' followers. None of it is written by Jesus himself. It's a testimony about Jesus from people who met him and were discipled by him. And what's crazy about it is Jesus' original followers were all hardcore God believers. So it wasn't like they didn't know God and then, you know, or they weren't worshiping God and then all of a sudden Jesus converted them to theism or God belief. They were hardcore God worshipers. They were hardcore into reading the Bible, but they all said that their life didn't really start until they met and started following Jesus. So Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. He didn't come to start a new faith called Christianity and then convert people to it. He never used that word, Christianity. He never said he was starting a new faith. He came to make us come alive again, to help us see again, to hear again, to feel again, to be reattached to God. And his whole way of doing that was by making disciples. That's how he restored people to their humanity and reattached them to God was by making followers. Mike Breen, a great disciple, wrote this. Jesus' model for seeing heaven colliding into earth, for seeing the kingdom of God advance in community, for seeing the world put to rights, and people becoming Christians was discipleship. So that's it. That was and is Jesus' whole plan is to make disciples. That is why we are here. As a church, that is why we are here, to be disciples of Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus. We are people who are being transformed by following Jesus, and we are inviting people into that same journey with us to be transformed by following Jesus with us. So if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, 
Are you doing that? Are you not only following Jesus, but are you making followers of Jesus? Do you know how to make a follower of Jesus? I would say that most Christians don't really know how to make a follower of Jesus, and it's not their fault. I grew up in church world, went to church from when I was like fresh out of the womb. I have been to a plethora of Bible studies and Christian training and conferences. When I graduated from high school, I went to Bible school for two years, and I learned all about Jesus. And then I went and got a Master's of Divinity, like a Master's of God. But when I came out, if you would have asked me, Matthew, do you know how to make a follower of Jesus? I would have broken you a cold sweat and wondered why I just spent $60,000 on a God education. I probably would have said, well, you know, go for coffee and talk about the Bible. Which, you know, isn't a terrible place to start, but it's truly not a total strategy for making a follower of Jesus. In this day and age, how do we make disciples of Jesus? Certainly no one can learn how to disciple through a sermon, but I'm still going to try, man. Uh, let's look at how Jesus made disciples and see a couple basics of disciple making the way that Jesus made disciples. And these methods for disciple making, for making a disciple of Jesus, are also methods that you can just use to teach anybody anything. So if you're not a Jesus follower, there's still some value for you here in seeing how Jesus taught. This scene begins that we're looking at. It's going to be in John chapter 1, the book of John chapter 1, starting at verse 35. And it begins the day after Jesus is baptized. So Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. He had no followers at that point. And that's where this story begins. The following day, the day after Jesus was baptized, John, John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. So John, the guy that baptized Jesus, he's a religious teacher. He's a powerful man in his own right. He began a big movement of repentance back to God. And he had his own disciples, his own close followers that he invited to follow him. These guys would have been not only his students, but also probably his closest friends. He spent a lot of time with them. And as Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. By which John meant, there's the guy who's going to pay for the sins of the whole world. There he is right there. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. It's like, See you later, John. You know, been nice following you. What else do you do if the guy that you respect most says, there's the Lamb of God. You probably want to follow him, want to get to know him a little bit. But in this moment, John is forever immortalized and will forever be recognized as the man who first made a Jesus follower. So he's the first guy that ever made a Jesus follower. And the way that he did that was by pointing and saying, there he is. This is a great way that all of us can begin to make followers of Jesus by pointing people to Jesus. And there's lots of different ways we can do that. One is by pointing them to what Jesus has done for us. We can just witness to all the things that Jesus has done for us or what it means for us to be a Jesus follower. That's one way to point people to Jesus. Another is we can point them to the story of Jesus that's in the Bible. We can share that story with them or encourage them to read it for themselves. We can point people to the Christian community, to our church, and say, here's where the followers of Jesus are. 
if you want to experience his presence, why don't you go and you know, come and hang out with us? So it starts with just saying, like John did, there he is. That's the best gift often that you could give your friends is simply pointing them to Jesus. And it says, Jesus looked around and saw them following. He said, what do you want? So what do you say when, when the Lamb of God turns around and looks at the and says, what do you want? You know, probably what they wanted to say is like, we want to hang out with you. We want to go where you go. You know, where you go, we will go. We want to hear what you say. We want to you know, watch every movement of your body. But all they can squeak out is this, Rabbi, where are you saying? It's kind of like the test of question. When you want to hang out with somebody, you don't want to be rejected. Because you're like, well, what are you up to tonight? What's going on? And Jesus said, well, what do you believe? What do you believe about God? Are you ready to die for me? No, he didn't say that. He said, come and see. Come and see, Jesus said. Come and see my place. Come and see where I'm staying. Come and hang out with me. Often we think that we need to smash people with a bunch of truth claims up front if they're ever going to become followers of Jesus. But the way Jesus made followers was simply inviting them into his life, inviting them over to his place, hanging out, being together, preferably just like Jesus did in your home, at least some of the time. That is where people get to see the real you. They get access into your life. They get to see what it means for you to be a Jesus follower in your home. They feel loved. They feel accepted. You know, when we get invited into somebody's house, we feel very loved by that. So Jesus began discipleship with hospitality, with a simple welcome into his home, into friendship. You can do this in a lot of different ways. And one thing that me and my wife have done, you know, as a part of trying to be disciples and make disciples recently, what we've done is say, Wednesday night is going to be like invite people over I wasn't going to say Wednesday night because I didn't want you to know. But anyway, they were inviting people over, especially those who are exploring or don't know Jesus yet. Maybe just so they can hang out with us and they can see our home. So if you get invited over for Wednesday night, you know, I don't think you're really a Jesus follower. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> um, yeah, are you, do you have people that you regularly, that you set aside time to welcome people into your life so they might experience Jesus through you? It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him. There's some specifics on time here. The reason why is because John, not John the Baptist, but John the writer of this book, was a disciple of Jesus. He most likely was one of these two guys. That's why he knows all the specifics of exactly what happened that night. So it was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with Jesus to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. So they hung out all night long. So you think about this. Jesus, who we claim to be the Son of God, definitely, I think, the most important per person in history for that reason, but, but also, you know, Jesus has been the biggest influencer on history. You know, he has shaped our civilization. The most important person who ever lived, and he has six hours you know, for probably four till 10 o'clock or something like that, to hang out with these two random guys that he just barely met. So when they say, Jesus, can we hang out? 
Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, I'm the Messiah. I've got a lot of people. I've got to save. I've got a lot to go. I'll, you know, set you in the schedule two weeks from now for an hour. Incredibly, Jesus is available for these two random guys. And in an evening, they become his followers. So what is your schedule like? Do you want to make followers of Jesus? Do you have the kind of schedule where you would be available to people? You know, for spontaneous relationship. Relationship doesn't respect calendars all the time. It needs a bit of space. You need a bit of space if you're going to offer yourself to people. Not only the space to give to them, but also the space where you have energy to give to them because you're not burned out from the 50 million other things that you're doing. So we need space in our schedule, you know, to let God bring people into our lives. With his own life, Jesus gives us permission to do less. Most important guy who ever lived, and he had six hours right then just to hang out. So certainly he gives us permission to do less. Life transformation takes time. So Jesus didn't snap his fingers over his disciples and instantly make them competent, loving, selfless ministers of the gospel. He immersed himself in their lives. More accurately, they immersed themselves in his life. His followers called him rabbi, teacher. Rabbis spent almost all of their time with their disciples. And the reason for that was it was understood, the Jews understood, that people don't learn very well in a classroom. So a classroom is the worst possible way that you could learn to actually do something. What does that say about what I'm doing right now? The Jews understood that you learn best to do something by doing it, by watching somebody else do it, and then learning to do it yourself. So disciples would watch their rabbis every single move. They could because they spent enough time with them. So it's like a Sabbath day. They would watch. How many steps does he take on the Sabbath? Like, well, that's how many steps that we take on the Sabbath. You know, what, what does he tip for lunch? No, that's what we tip for lunch. How does he pray to God? That's how we're going to pray. And as you see Jesus teaching his disciples these things, like step by step, the minutiae of relating to God, relating to other people. They're watching everything that he does and learning to do it by watching their rabbi. In almost every area of learning in our society, other than church, we seem to understand this. For instance, surgery. My brain uh, shares this illustration. He said, imagine that you're about to have like a quintuple bypass, you're gonna have heart surgery, and the general aesthetic is being administered to you. And right at that moment, before you go on, you say to the surgeon, how many times have you done this before? And what if you said, well, I never, never did it before, but I watched a bunch of professors talk about it in my classroom. How comfortable would you be in that moment? That's kind of what we're up to, is spiritual open heart surgery. You know, we're leading people into a very different life of following Jesus, which has very different heart commitments. How good are we going to be at living that life or teaching anybody else to live that life if it's all expected to be done during the sermon, during the Bible study? We need more access to people who are living this than that. The Bible is the human instruction Manual, and we need it. It preserves the truth about who God is, who we are, how we can connect to God. But no one becomes a competent surgeon or a competent mechanic 
or a competent electrician by only reading the instruction manual. So it's like, man, you, usually if you're trying to do something complicated and all you have is the instruction manual, you're like, you know, trying to do something in the engine of your truck. I mean, this is my experience. You're like trying to look at the instruction manual and like, oh, this goes here. What, what, how does that work? And then it's like the instruction manual goes across the room because you can't understand it. So we need people who we can watch live the instruction manual, who can help us understand how to use that instruction manual, the Bible, but also live it. So we know how we can live it in this time, in this place. Following Jesus cannot be taught adequately in a classroom or during a sermon. It can only be taught through apprenticeship. And that's a word that we have to keep in mind when we think of discipleship. It is apprenticeship. Discipleship, the way Jesus did it, is apprenticing people into a different life. And Jesus has put it into our hands to apprentice people into our life, given that we are following Jesus. And that is a very fearsome thing when you start to think about you know, my life and how good of a reflection that is of Jesus' life and how poor a reflection it is of Jesus' life. But Jesus has called us, regardless, to disciple people into our way of life of following Jesus. So we must be able to say, like Paul did, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Discipleship is an apprenticeship that takes time. People have to have access to your life. And Jesus commissioned us to apprentice people into our life. All right, that's the first thing. Let's get on with the story. Jesus spends the whole evening with his disciples. And they become his, with these two guys, they become his followers. And then the next day, this happens. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. How long does it, you know, do you need to be a disciple of Jesus before you start making disciples of Jesus? For Andrew, it was like 12 hours. So Jesus said, come and see. You know, come and hang out with me. The next day, Andrew's going to his brother, Peter, come and see. Come and hang out with us. So we do not need to be 20-year-long veteran Christian gurus to draw people to Jesus. You know, often we think we've got to have everything sorted out. We've got to have all our sins dealt with. We've got to know the Bible like Hank Hanegraaff before we can make a disciple. That's just simply not the model that we see in Scripture. And if that was the case, no one would ever make a disciple, would they? Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. And the name Peter means rock or stone. So Jesus says, You will be known as the rock. If the first foundation of making a disciple of Jesus is that we spend time with people, we apprentice them into our life, then the second foundation is that we build people up into who they will become in Jesus. As far as we know, this is the first moment when Jesus meets Peter. Didn't know Jesus before. Jesus looks intently at him and has some kind of like God-like, Jedi-like powers to be able to see Peter's character. So he sees everything about Peter, his good and bad. But Jesus doesn't focus in on the weaknesses. 
and the sins and the failure of, of which there were many in Peter's character at this time. He doesn't focus in on all the behaviors and attitudes that he's going to have to change, all the flakiness that he's going to have to get out of Peter by the time he's done. Jesus doesn't focus in on any of that. He says to Peter who he will become. He sees him for who he will become. He'll be known as the rock. So at this point, Peter is anything but the rock. If you read the story, you see that Peter is uh, very volatile. He's very unreliable. He is impulsive. He's going to deny Jesus and abandon him. But at this point, all that escapes Jesus' lips is a massive pump up of Peter's tires. Now you're going to be known as the rock, man. So Jesus is, is making Peter into a discipler of others right from the beginning. He's building strength into him that's going to be poured out into the community. The very first moment Jesus meets him, he's already doing that. We do not have Jesus Jedi-like abilities, most of us, I don't think, where we can see everything about somebody the first moment we meet them. But as we get to know them, as we listen to them, we'll learn things about them, good and bad. I'm gifted at seeing the bad. It is one of my spiritual gifts. I'm really good at seeing the bad in me, and unfortunately, I'm really good at seeing the bad in you too. I wish I didn't. But if we're going to disciple people like Jesus, we need to build them up into who Christ will make them. We need to tell them who they will be. And that isn't flattery. You know, usually we can see the seeds of goodness, the seeds of what God will build up in a person which will become a great gift to the community. We've got to call that out in people. Find it. Call it out. I have a friend who is not a Jesus follower yet, um, and the more I get to know him, the more I admire him. He has some incredible qualities, incredibly compassionate and empathetic, very encouraging. And a couple weeks ago, I went out on a limb and I said, you have Jesus written all over you. And I meant it. And he received it. He was encouraged that I saw Jesus in him. So I am discipling him. He doesn't know it yet. I'm discipling him incognito. <laughs> so disciple people like Jesus, we have to spend time with them so they can see how we do it, how we live the life of being a Christian. And then we have to begin building them up into the character of Christ and also into the competence, the ministry competence of Christ. And we need to challenge them as well. I don't have time to get into all those things right now. But these are the two backbones of discipleship. Inviting people in our life, building them up into Christ. Are you doing that with anyone? You have anybody like, man, you know, it's not necessarily like, man, these are my disciples, you know, but it's like, these are people who I, I would love to meet Jesus, and I'd love to be used by Jesus to draw them into following him. Have you identified some people? You're like, man, these are the people I'm praying for. These are the people I'm inviting into my life. These are the people I'm encouraging into the character of Christ. If you read the story of Jesus' disciples, you see that they were complete failures. You know, they all failed in the end. Despite having the most powerful, the most competent mentor, leader, discipler, in the end, all of Jesus' disciples abandoned him in his darkest hour. Not even Jesus made strong, complete, live for others, live for God, flat out disciples without one special ingredient. Jesus died, paid for our sins, and then rose 
from the dead. And then he sent his spirit into the hearts of his followers. And he said, wait until the spirit comes and you will have power to witness. You will have power not only to be my disciples, because you'll have God living in you, but then you'll have power to make Jesus followers. So it's not up to us in the end. You know, we do small acts of obedience that we know are powerless in and of themselves, but we have the spirit of God living in us who draws people through our love, through our witness to Christ. This is why we have the Spirit of God in our midst, not only so that we can be disciples of Jesus, but so that we would have the power to make disciples of Jesus. Will you lean more into making disciples of Jesus? Will you put aside your fears, your fears of failure, your fears of inadequacy, your fears of missing out on some other life, and will you embrace this life of making followers of Jesus. Our church needs more disciples. We have people that continue to come in and who need to be discipled. We need you to disciple people. Will you stumble along with us as we stumble along making Jesus followers? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that uh, we, we, we don't have to earn our acceptance into your graces or into the graces of the Father by the way that we follow you or by the way that we make disciples. Thank you that uh, you've died so that we can know we would always be accepted. Thank you that you've earned our salvation, you've earned our acceptance for us on the cross. And Lord, yeah, we open up our, our lives. We receive, again, more power from you. Your Spirit's work in us to help us follow Jesus. And also, Lord, we ask for the power to make disciples. We, 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 we want to be people that really do love you and really do love others and is a part of loving them, holding out you to them. So help us in that, Lord. Give us the power as your church to make more disciples. Be this in your name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message at Mountainside Community Church. If you would like to get connected to one of our campuses or just learn more about who we are as a church, then we encourage you to visit our website, mountainsidechurch.ca. God bless.